Father, we're gathered this morning as your body, as a gathered representation of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross by redeeming a people, purchasing a people for yourself and bringing us into your family. And so, Father, as we gather together this morning, knit us together as one body, as one family, heirs of your kingdom, sons and daughters of you, called by your name into your kingdom work. And as we gather, we proclaim these truths that we've sung about, that even when we do not see the work that you are doing, we believe that you continue to build your kingdom even into the darkness. And that your kingdom, the kingdom of light, overwhelms the darkness. And we can see, we can see that you grow your people. You grow us as individuals and you grow us as a body even through seasons of suffering, pain, and darkness. And Father, in that we rejoice. And because of the truths you've proclaimed in your word to us and the truths we've observed, we've seen, and we've heard with our own eyes and ears, and we know the truth of who you are, we can have hope even in the darkest days. And so, Father, if there's anyone in this room, anyone listening this morning that is in a place of despair or hopelessness, Father, bring joy. Bring hope. Father, Bring your very presence through your spirit to lift up the brokenhearted. And Father, remind us of the truths that we proclaim so readily. Remind us of the power of what it means to say that we are sons and daughters of you. Remind us of what it means to believe in you. Because when we say we believe in you, we don't just mentally assent to the truth of your existence, but we believe that you are the only source of our hope, our joy, and our very life. And not just this life we live, but life eternal. And Father, though we are sinners, you enacted a plan to reconcile us to yourselves where we rebelled against you and we sinned against you. You reconciled us through the blood and sacrifice of your son, Jesus. And so we gather on the basis of the resurrection, on the basis of the victory that you have achieved, oh Jesus, over the darkness, over our greatest enemy, over our sin, and over the grave. And we proclaim your victory this morning. We proclaim the new life that we've received, not through our own good decisions or good efforts, but we've received life through your power and your work. So, Father, because of the access you've given us as sons and daughters, we come before you interceding on behalf of the broken. Interceding on behalf of those that grieve. We grieve with those that grieve. We weep with those that weep this morning. And Father, in our family in particular, we weep and we grieve with the Bennett's family. And God, I, I first, though, praise you and rejoice in the knowledge of Alan's homegoing and the truth that Alan proclaimed up to his dying days, that he believed in you and he had received salvation through Jesus' work on the cross. So we know that Alan is now in the presence of Jesus. And there is no more effects of the disease, no more pain, no more weakness. 
that Father has received his healing from you. But God, we do pray that for the family, that they would not grieve as those who have no hope. But Father, bring the hope of the, res- of the resurrection and your coming restoration into the hearts and minds of the entire family each and every day. May your mercies be new every morning for them. And Father, we praise you. We praise you for that knowledge. That your mercies are new. That your faithfulness is great. And your steadfast love never ceases. Remind us so that we may proclaim those truths freely. And now, Father, as we receive your word from Jason, God, speak through him. May he be your simple instrument to proclaim what you have to say to us, to your children, through the word of God this morning. May it be clear, and may the good news of your gospel be clear. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for being here. Um, Thank you for joining us in worship at our second service. Um, Just an update for you. I've been saying it for a few weeks. We are still on track to be back together in the main building in August. So please pray for us uh, unto that end that um, in the next few weeks, the things that need to come together in order for us to be out there in August would continue to come together. We're still waiting on some shipments to arrive. That's going to be a big deal, the way shipping works in today's uh, day and age. We need to get the dominoes to fall in the right order in order to get everything um, in there on time. So please pray for that. Um, Pray for those that are going to be working in that room. Continue to pray for safety and continue to pray that... um, that God would show us what he wants to show us while we're in this waiting period. Um, that early on we prayed that God would not move us back into the, into the main building until he's ready for us to go back. And that we would learn something about community and about what it means to be a church and to adjust and to be flexible and to, to love each other well through this season of worship in the youth room. And so I just continue to pray that God is teaching us new lessons that each and every week we're able to uh, meet, interact with, sit by people that we wouldn't normally sit by, and that the out-of-our-comfort-zone experience that we're having in this building would continue to grow us in our faith in in Christ Jesus. And so it looks like August, continue to pray into that end, but let's keep being flexible and learning what God has to teach us while we're we're out here. Uh, This half sheet has some announcements for you on it. Um, I'll first draw your attention to the back page where it says sermon notes, and then there's financial info at, at the bottom of it. I'll remind you, we have three boxes set up in this building, one in this room, one in the gymnasium, and one in the lobby out here. Uh, we want to remind you to continue to give to the church, and we want to communicate the financial health of the church um, through the bulletin weekly. So that's what those bottom four numbers are. We want you to be praying for the overall health of the church. We want you to be giving faithfully. We want you to know and, and feel informed about what's going on there. Um, I'll also tell you that we, you can give online and through the, um, through the church office. However um, you choose to give, we, we just want you to be faithful in stewarding the resources that God has entrusted to you. Um, On the front page, there is a number of upcoming events, a lot kids and youth ministry related. Summertime is just busy for those kind of events. So if you have children, grandchildren, if you're a youth, make make sure you pay attention to those things because there's lots of good stuff going on this summer. And I'll remind you that for um, 
VBS leaders, those that are helping and serving in VBS, you would have signed up for one of three different VBS training times. And one of those, I think the biggest of those, is um, right after this service, and that's going to be upstairs. And so please, if you signed up to go to the VBS training today, uh, make sure you stick around and uh, attend that. That will be upstairs. Uh, the last event on that upcoming events list is what Jason's going to share with you today. Um, he has uh, been developing a study through the book of 1 Corinthians that will be offered on Sunday nights in July. And as we were talking about that as elders, we saw it fit to uh, give him the opportunity to give you a taste of, of what he hopes God accomplishes through this study on Sunday nights and give it to you on a Sunday morning. And that will be something that you'll be getting more and more information about there um, and you can sign up for if you want to be a part of that study. But I'm going to give Jason the time now to deliver to us God's word from uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, you're going to have to bear with me. I come with gear, and uh, so I'm going to do a little moving some stuff around. I, I like to sit down, at least on this stage, because if you'll notice, when Tim's preaching, he always, no matter how far back I scoot these mics, he always ends up running into one of them. And so uh, I'm going to park myself so that I don't, I don't do that, because I know I move around a lot more than he does. Um, speaking of moving uh, around, how, how far did you travel to get here this morning? I want you to think of that number in your head. Um, if you know the miles, uh, think of that. If you know how long it takes you roughly with, uh, with traffic, I want you to have that number in your mind uh, as we're talking um, this morning. I, I know that there's people in the church here who uh, travel quite a, a distance in order to get here. I'm not one of those people. Uh, it, it takes me 0.7 miles on my car uh, to get here every every day that I'm working, and uh, that's intentional. I like to eat lunch at home, but, uh, but it, and it's nice that when I work here, I'm close, but, but there are some people in this church who, who like live in Cleveland, and that's from here to the city center in Cleveland, that's, I think, uh, I wrote it down. It's a 48-minute drive, 30 miles to the center of Cleveland, um, and that's, that's quite a trek, and, uh, and, and in the church where I was raised, there was a family that was really engaged, had a lot of kids, and they were there every time the doors were open, and they would regularly drive 45 minutes in order to be part of our specific church. It always fascinated me to find people who drove great distances in order to be a part of a specific church. Um, because you know, I, I think the reasons are a lot of times because of, of the preacher or the preaching style or, um, I don't know, just uh, uh, maybe the music or the kids' ministry. or, or uh, there's, there's a bunch of reasons when I talk to people who drive a long distance that they give me, and it's kind of the same, same reasons, but uh, I, I think I know, I think I've figured out why people travel that far. Because, I mean, it, here's the thing, like, we're in the Bible Belt. Like, the specific reason that you give me as to why you come to a specific church, like, you could probably find that, if you're driving over half an hour, you can probably find a church that also does that same thing that's closer to you, right? And so I think that, that yes, doctrine is absolutely foundational, and it is important. Um, uh, the preaching style does... Uh, does make a difference if it's expositional versus topical preaching. Um, the, the events that the church put on, put on that, that's important. Um, quality of music is really important, right? <laughs> like that's, 
near the top. But, but I think the reason that people would, would travel a great distance, ultimately, it's because of the community, which means that it's you. You are the secret sauce. You are the special element. You are the thing, that, that, that undefinable quality that makes Fellowship Bible Church what it is. And it's not necessarily me. It's not Tim. It's not the fact that we have an elder board and there are wonderful guys on there. And it's not the ministries that we're doing or the events that we plan. You are what make up Fellowship Bible Church. And every time you show up here, you determine what our culture is by how you interact with each other and, and how you handle yourself in conversation and how we pursue the Word of God together, you set that course yourself. And so I think it's incredibly important that we take some time to figure out like, what is the thing that binds us together the most? What is the glue that holds us together? And so how far did you travel to be a part of fellowship this morning? Because I believe that that community, that culture that we're building is incredibly valuable. And I think it's incredibly valuable in the kingdom of God. And that kingdom has a real enemy that wants to see it dismantled. It wants to dismantle us. And so if we are going to pursue something together based around the gospel of Christ, we can expect that there is going to be stuff that comes up that's going to try to pull us apart. And so how far did you travel to be here this morning? And I think whatever distance you traveled, it's worth your full engagement, not just your ears listening to me, not just your mind, not just your heart but allowing the truth of the gospel of Christ and the word of God to seep into you and then out to the people around you. This idea of community is incredibly powerful. And, and I, I was on vacation last week. Thank you, Violet, for leading us in worship last week. We really appreciate you stepping up and all the ladies who are involved. Um, it's such a joy to be able to just like go on vacation and be like, she got it, you know? When I was on vacation, I actually had the opportunity to uh, speak to a couple who was planning to move. They're moving from one city to another city, and, uh, and they were planning to move 1,122 miles away between these two cities. That is quite a trip. That's about, no stops, that's 17 and a half hours. I think it's safe to say it could take you 19 and a half hours to get there. And just to give you a point of reference, if you watched every single movie in the Lord of the Rings trilogy back to back to back, and then you watched all of the movies in the Hobbit trilogy back to back to back to back, extended edition, that's 19 and a half hours. That's, how, that's the amount of distance that they're, they're planning to travel. And this family isn't moving because of a job opportunity. They're not moving because they need special doctors. They're not moving to be closer to family or anything like that. They are moving specifically for the opportunity to be a part of a community. They found a community that they loved, and they are willing to uproot their lives and travel in order to be a part of it. And so I believe that being a part 
of a strong Christian community is an integral part of what it means to be human. Like, we, we all have personality tests that tell us whether or not we're extroverted or introverted. And, and I think those are a little bit dangerous because a lot of times we use those as a crutch. And being an extrovert simply means um, that when you are around people, you feel energized by being around them. It doesn't mean that you want to be the life of the party and in the center of the room. Now, certainly that can be the case. But it just means that when you're around people, you feel energized from being around them. And so for the introverts in the room, which I think there are probably more people who would classify themselves as introverts than extroverts, the danger is assuming that the opposite of that is true, that when you are around people, it drains you of energy. But a true introvert just doesn't receive energy from the people around them. If you are feeling drained by the people around you, it has a lot more to do with the people around you than it does your own personality. And so you cannot use that as a crutch in order to not engage fully and deeply in, uh, in community. And did you know that a lot of counselors, um, when they're giving you counsel, they may not tell you this up front, but as you, a, a counselor who knows his stuff will not count people in your family or people that you live with as part of healthy, normal social interaction because you're around them too much. Your body physically needs, your mind needs to go outside of its house and have interaction with other people. Isolation, loneliness can only be psychologically addressed by venturing outside of your household. And, and the physical reasons for this is you'll, you'll spike in anxiety and depression are a lot of times found in people who don't have enough social interaction with each other. And we kind of know, this is kind of basic, especially this year, coming out of the pandemic and that we just had this huge social experiment where we're discovering, oh yeah, what we thought was true about all of this really is true. But I think the same implications are true spiritually as well. Um, Hebrews 10.24 said, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So if I want to experience love in my life, if I want to see the fruit of the Spirit produced in my life in the form of good works, if I want to be excited about Jesus coming back, then I have to be around other Christians. So if that's what you want in your life, how you interact with the people in this room matters a lot. But more than that, if you want to see those same things in your church, people who are loving, showing the fruit of the Spirit, and excited about the return of Christ, Maranatha, that's an old term that, that um, the, the ancient Christians used to say, which means he's coming, he's coming. If you want to be excited about that, if you want to see the church excited about that, then you're going to have to encourage the people you're around. That's what this verse is saying. Another verse is Ecclesiastes 4.12. We just went through Ecclesiastes not too long ago. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now the implication of this verse is incredibly practical at first. If you're down a dark alley and potentially going to be mugged, if you're by yourself, your chances of being mugged go up. 
And if you are around three people, those chances go down. It's safe, there's safety in numbers, but the same is true spiritually. Like we, I, do, you, do you really believe that the Christian walk is one of spiritual warfare? If you really believe that there's a real enemy who has set himself up against the kingdom of God, and if you are identifying yourself as part of that kingdom, it might be wise to not go it alone. Because he sees you as an easy target if you are by yourself. And so that is why on Sunday evenings in July, every Sunday evening, including the one right around the 4th, we're going to do a study of the book of 1 Corinthians. And this morning is essentially the first session where all I'm hoping to do is give you a sense of context for what Paul is writing this book about and to. Who are the people in the church in Corinth? And what were the problems that they were facing? What did Paul need to address? But what you'll find is that you're going to learn a lot about community and, uh, and how the gospel affects a community who is committed to Christ. And so, in order to, to go about this, um, we're going to talk about five specific problems that the church in Corinth faced. Um, and, and pretty much the whole book is, is centered around these five problems. There's more problems that Paul addresses, about 12 in total, but, but five big problems that, that the church in Corinth faced that we actually still to this day in some way, shape, or form, we also face as well. And the beautiful thing about uh, the community that Paul was speaking to was that he, he cared uh, deeply that this church rectify these problems, but that, that he would rectify these problems with the power of the gospel. So in each case, you're going to see a problem, and then you're going to see how the gospel is the answer or the solution to that problem. But we can expect that there's going to be problems because community is messy. Like success in having a healthy and a good church culture and community, it's inherently going to be messy because it involves you. <laughs> Who else can say, there's parts of my life that are a mess. Like that's, that is me, right? Like I... There's no way that, that you can get through social interactions, long-term, deep, committed relationships, and not have some forms of conflict and problems. It reminds me a little bit of the first time that I, um, I taught a soccer team. We were doing a little indoor soccer league with my son, Wyatt, and uh, it was a bunch of four-year-olds, and uh, there's a picture of him. There he is. Yeah, cute little Wyatt. And, uh, and so we, I, I, was, I was determined that this soccer team was going to be the best team of little four-year-old soccer players that you've ever seen. And so in all of our practices beforehand, we were doing drills after drills, passing and strategy, and I had this plan and this dream in my, in my mind where they were going to be the most well-organized and strategic four-year-old soccer team that you have ever seen. And so... I lined them up on the field in their positions, and I should have known what was about to happen, 
when the other coach on the other side lined up his kids like they were revolutionary soldiers, just right in one line. I thought, well, we're going to absolutely destroy. Not the case. Kick the ball, and all of a sudden it was mass chaos. I mean, there was just a ball of arms and legs and snot and tears and cleats and soccer ball somewhere in there that just kind of roamed around the field for a little bit. And our team was left going, nobody even attempted to pass the ball, right? And what I realized from that situation was that me and my players had two very different goals, right? But what, what I wanted for those kids was uh, a, a team that knew the fundamentals and, and would have a, a long, long career in the sport. Like, I wanted them to, to know how to play soccer and, and that it would carry them through to be uh, soccer players for years and years to come. Every single four-year-old on that team had one goal. Kick the ball. It didn't matter where. It didn't matter if you were kicking it towards your goal or the other team's goal, out of ball, out of the, out of the little course. That it, 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 if the ball is close, you kick it. And if it's not close, you run over to the ball, and then you kick it, because that's soccer, right? And so I had to quickly readjust my strategy. And so what, what I decided to do is well, I'm going to shift the mindset of how I was going to coach these kids. One, we are going to have fun. And, and kicking the ball falls under the umbrella of having fun, right? And second, every practice, every game, just learn one thing new, right? Learn something new. And by the end of the season, they were relatively successful. I was able to figure out how to coach a horde instead of a team, and, uh, and, it, and it ended up being all right. But, but this is, I, I tell you that story because the church in Corinth, you will see felt a little bit like that soccer team. And, and it was really hard to kind of figure out, like, what is, what, what is Paul's strategy here? Like, why, why, did he, why did he approach things the way that he did? Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul actually gives us his strategy. And he says, When I came to you, brothers... So Paul is writing this a year and a half after being in the church in Corinth and establishing that church. He says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. That last sentence is incredibly important. When Paul was with them, he decided to know nothing among them except Christ and him crucified. Paul would not get distracted by uh, arguments or philosophies or distractions. All that he did in order to establish the church in Corinth was preach the simple gospel of Jesus coming as a man, dying on the cross, raising again for the third day. You have to wrestle with that. There was a guy who was dead and raised himself from the dead. Did that happen or did it not? And if it did, then it changes everything. And so the question is, is that simple gospel enough? And obviously the answer is yes. That gospel should be enough to establish a church and to unify a body of believers together. And so, but the problem was that Corinth had their own agendas and strategies for how to be a successful church. 
and they kind of got in the way. And so our goal today is to make sure that we all have an understanding that the most important thing at this church is Jesus. It's not Tim. It's not the worship team. It's not our elder board. It's not our ministries. The most important thing is Jesus. If you come in here on a Sunday morning and you leave talking about how great the music was or, um, I don't know, how, how much fun your kids had, that's, that's wonderful. But what we want as a church is for you to leave this place saying, Jesus is amazing. I, I saw him at this church in a new way through the way that I interacted with people, through the way that I worshiped, through the way that he revealed himself to me through scripture and the proclamation of the world, word. Like that, that's, that's the goal. Our goal is the gospel. That is the thing that binds us together. And here's the thing is when we have problems and when the church in Corinth had issues and problems and disagreements, what it revealed to Paul was specific places in their hearts that struggled to believe the truth of the gospel. And so when I say that the church in Corinth struggled with the same things that we struggle with today, what I'm saying is that this study and this book is an invitation for you to take a peek inside of the hurt and broken places of your heart and discover the places inside you that, that really are challenged to believe the truth of the gospel, which requires that we preach the gospel to ourselves. So if you've ever wondered how to practically use the gospel on a, on a daily basis in order to confront all of the stress and busyness and pain and hurt and division that you experience inside of your life, if you want some healing there, then, then you need to start coming on Sunday nights in July because I'm going to teach you exactly what Paul taught the Corinthians. That's how to apply the simple truth of the gospel into the broken places of our lives and experience restoration and, and have it drive us into uh, better, deeper community with each other and deeper communion with Christ. Okay? So that's the goal. But before we really dive into the, the, the deep stuff and the problems that the church had, you kind of have to understand the context of the book of 1 Corinthians and, and this, understand the city of Corinth. Um, and then the second thing you have to have an understanding of is the nature of the kingdom of God and how, just how in conflict Corinth was with the kingdom of God. Okay? And so the first thing we're going to do is talk about Corinth. And it's really frustrating because I spent a lot of time trying to understand and, and get inside the mind of somebody who lived in Corinth. And it took a lot of time and a lot of research. And then suddenly I found this one guy and he just said it so simply. And it's like, well, I could have just started there and it would have saved me a lot of time. He said, Corinth was the ancient version of Las Vegas. Oh, okay, got it. The ancient version of Las Vegas. And you'll see that that is true. Uh, we've got a map here. I just want to give you some context for where it is. You can see that boot on the side, and the red dot is where Corinth is. The boot, of course, is Italy. And so um, the big thing to know is that the Rome was in charge. Rome is in Italy, and uh, 
a lot of commerce and, and stuff had to happen with everything that was happening on the right-hand side of the screen. So if we can go to the next image, um, you'll see right there. It's a little bit difficult to see, but here is Corinth here. Here's the edge of Italy. And so if you were traveling uh, over here towards Ephesus or Athens or Thessalonica, what you would do is you wouldn't come down here into the Mediterranean Sea because there were a lot of storms. It was much easier to come through this little inlet to Corinth and then pick up your boat and all of the stuff in it and carry it over this small stretch of land and then hop back into the water here and then go to Athens or Ephesus or wherever else you needed to go. And so it was a very strategic area. If you can go to the next slide, you'll see that eventually uh, they cut a canal in between, um, in between uh, the Corinth Gulf and the Ceridonic Gulf there so that uh, boats could get through. But at the time that we're talking, that had not happened yet. Um, and so it was attracting um, a ton of merchants. Uh, it, was, it was a city that was eventually, uh, initially it was built by the Greeks because it was a huge port. It was a really important uh, area of commerce. But then it was destroyed as the Romans came and took it over. And so that was about 150 years before Jesus came on the scene. And then about 50 years before Jesus came on the scene, the Romans were like, you know what? That was a good place to have a port, so we're going to rebuild this city. Now, to us in the United States, a 50-year-old city is not all that impressive, but in the ancient world, to have a city that was only 50 years old, it was still up and coming. It was the new place. And so it was this, this blend of Greek philosophy and Roman politics. And so there were all of these new ideas and uh, all of these people getting incredibly wealthy off of the trade happening, happening in the area. And... Um, and the Greeks had worshipped Aphrodite, the, the goddess of love, in uh, temples there. And so there, were there was t a history of temple prostitution, which the, Gr the Romans brought back. And so that was like very commonplace. And I guess the whole point of all of this that I'm telling you is that ancient Corinth wasn't all that different from today. Because what is true of our culture? We have really, really easy access to things that are sensual in nature. We have uh, a fascination for what is the next new thing, right? Whether it be a gadget or a toy or a philosophy or an ideology. And, and most importantly, it made the world a very small place. There were so many people traveling in and out. Who, who in here has been at a place away from home, maybe on vacation or traveling, and then you get to talking to a stranger, and they're like, oh, I know somebody who lives in Tunnel Hill, you know? It happens to me often. Uh, not that I travel often, but it, just the world was a small place in ancient Corinth. And so it leaves us with two questions. First of all, this place that was so bad... And I mean, it was so bad. We'll get into some of those things throughout the study. How is something so good, the gospel, going to be accepted in a place that's so bad? Right? And the secondly, how is it going to cut through the noise? There's so many other philosophies and ideas and religions floating around in this place. What? How... Imagine being Paul, like looking at 
Corinth from a boat for the first time. Like, what am I going to say to these people? And that's where the nature of the kingdom of God is incredibly radically different from that of the world. And the simple fact is that the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, right? He lowers the high things and exalts the humble, right? And this same idea and concept is, is woven into the whole gospel narrative in such a way that, that it's incredibly different from anything that the, the people in Corinth had heard before, and they responded. But given time, they had a hard time jiving with that. And Paul ended up losing the respect of the church of Corinth because he wasn't rich. Because a lot of the other teachers that they liked were coming in and speaking and then expecting a lot of money in return for what they had to say. And Paul came and he made tents so that he wouldn't be a burden to anyone. In 2 Corinthians eleven seven, it says, Did I commit a sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? In addition to that, Paul kind of says that he wasn't a great public speaker in 1 Corinthians 2, 1. He says, And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come preaching you to the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He kept it really simple. He kept it focused on the gospel. And then thirdly, Paul was under persecution, and that wasn't very cool. In 2 Corinthians 1.8, it says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, for the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired for life itself. And so this wealthy community full of uh, diversity, uh, ethnic and, and religious background diversity, just all of a sudden was clashing with the kingdom of God and the upside-down nature of it. And in that context, the gospel somehow was able to take root. A simple gospel was able to unify the people of Corinth. And Paul was able to found the church. 1 Corinthians is written a year and a half after Paul leaves. And given that amount of time, there are problems that popped up in the church. And Paul feels the need to address them. And so we're going to briefly look at um, five of the main issues and problems that Paul addresses. This will be essentially like the topics that we will discuss and dive into um, on, the, on our study on Sunday nights. The first problem was uh, division in the church. People had decided to pick their favorite teachers. Paul had come, he had established the church, and then Peter actually came and also spoke in Corinth, and then this other guy named Apollos came and preached the gospel in Corinth. And, and people picked their favorite and then started bickering with each other about who is better, Paul or Peter or Apollos, and, and they picked sides to the point where they were ready to split the church based on the preferences of the teachers that they preferred. Now, that sounds a little bit like today, doesn't it? And so how does Paul respond to division inside of the church? Um, he responds by saying, this is not a popularity contest. 
If it's a popularity contest, do you know who wins? Jesus wins. Each one of these three guys is preaching Jesus. Christ himself is not divided. And so if this, should, this should inform us about our community and who we can have true Christian community and fellowship with. It is those people who believe the gospel and those people who, who, can, who can identify with Christ. Those are the ones who we can have community with. If we believe the same things about Jesus, it should unify us, not pull us apart. Secondly, um, sensuality. Uh, like I said, there was a history of temple prostitution. Um, there was even a guy inside the church who was sleeping with his mother-in-law, and people were saying, it's fine, because God's grace can just cover it. And Paul responds to this saying, this is not okay. And what you do with your body matters a lot. Uh, specifically, he brings in the concept of the resurrection, saying our bodies are promised to be raised to the, from the dead with Christ. And so what you do with your body now matters deeply for when you are resurrected. There is... No compromise when it comes to sexual integrity for those who are in Christ. The reason being, there is something specific about sexual sin that puts you in bondage to it. So this argument that well, we're free in Christ, God's grace can cover it, that's not actually freedom. Freedom is applying the gospel of Christ, the grace that he has given to you, and breaking the chains of sexual sin and bondage so that you can live in purity. And there is no compromise for the Christian when it comes to sexual purity. The third disagreement they had was over food. Now this, seems, this one is the one that seems particularly specific to the church in Corinth, but it does apply to us today. Um, and the question was, what do we do with food that has been sacrificed to these Greek and Roman gods? There are some of us who say, this is just meat. And there are some of us who say, well, if you are eating this meat, then it's kind of like partaking in the worship of those gods. What do we, what do, we do with that? Paul, can you just like, tell us the answer? And Paul, his answer is essentially, don't mislead anybody. If you are around someone who believes that you are partaking in something that is worship of something other than God, then you shouldn't do it. But if you're in a group that understands that meat is meat, then you can eat. And, and so what he's saying is love sacrifices for the benefit of others. Love prefers others. And isn't this at the core of the gospel, right? That Jesus came and died. He left all of heaven in order to come and live on earth and then die in our place. Love prefers others. If we are to be like Christ, you're going to be thinking through the lens of how can I honor my brothers and sisters. 
The fourth problem that they had was in their gatherings, much like this, their church gatherings. Now, there were these very powerful spiritual experiences happening inside the church at the time, and people were speaking in tongues and prophesying, but what, it ha- what happened in the midst of all of that is a lot of chaos, and there wasn't any organization to it, and so people were coming out of these meetings going, I don't, I don't really know what just happened. And so Paul speaks into that, and he says, God's Spirit works in unity. It binds us together, and the church is a body, and each body should function in such a way that it builds up each other, build itself up. That's a key part of that passage. And so the way that the gospel is applied to how do we, how do we reconcile how we do our gatherings is love compels service. Love is outward looking. Love is is seeking a way to see how Christ's sacrifice on my behalf can now benefit somebody else. And love prefers others' spiritual experiences over my own. And then the fifth problem that they were dealing with was that there were some people inside of their church who said that there was no such thing as the resurrection, that Jesus didn't raise from the dead. And Paul combats this very, very passionately by saying that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then his crucifixion was absolutely meaningless. If Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, then we have no hope for salvation because there is nothing saving us from the finality of death. Doubting the resurrection is the same thing as doubting the whole gospel. And so this eternal hope that we have in Christ is the same hope that sustains us as a body, a communal body of believers week after week. The gospel equips us for love of God and love of each other so that we can be on mission. And this whole thing is just all about making sure that when you come in here, you see Jesus, that he is central to your spiritual life. He is central to your relationships with other inside the church. And so So how far did you travel to get here this morning? Don't waste it. Don't waste it by coming in here and just being willing to receive something without also being able to offer something of yourself. Through vulnerability, through honesty, through how you've seen Christ this week in your life, through being able to reach out to someone else who is hurting, who needs the love of Christ in their life. You have an opportunity to be Jesus to someone here in this room this morning. And so maybe you're here and you, you recognize that you want this community thing and you, you recognize that you, you want this experience of being close-knit to other people and close-knit to Christ. 
And you're realizing that as I've been talking, that central glue that holds it all together, Jesus, maybe you don't have him. And if that's you this morning, it's time to deal with that. Because Jesus really did come. He really did die. And he really was risen again and then appeared to over 500 people as proof. You have to, have to wrestle with that. Because if that's true, it's going to change the way that your life operates. It's going to change the way that you perceive Christian community is going to change the way that you interact with God himself. And so I want to take a moment and just, for those of us who, who are believers in this room, who have accepted the gospel, um, I, I, I want to invite the band to come up, and we're going to sing Goodness of God. And the reason I wanted to do this particular song is because um, when I think about the way that Christ has worked in my life and revealed himself to me, it is, it is often in the context of community, and it's often in the context of relationships. And so I want you to take just a brief moment while I get my guitar and stuff and, and remember, remember the times that God has shown his love to you and his grace and his mercy. He has counseled you and he has comforted you from someone inside the church. And so take a minute, remember that time, and then we are going to respond in gratitude to our King for his faithfulness to us. Father, I've known you as a friend, 
I have lived in the goodness of God. And all my life you have been faithful. And all my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing. The goodness of God. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. With my life laid down and surrendered now, I give you everything. Your goodness is running after. It's running after me, your goodness. Your goodness is running after. It's running after me. Your goodness is running after. It's running after me. With my life laid down, I'm surrendered now. I give you everything. Your goodness is running after. It's running after me. my life you have been faithful yes you have you have and all my life you have been so so good and every breath that I am in I will sing the goodness sing it out all my life and all my life you have been faithful and all my life you have been so so good with every breath that i am able i will sing of the goodness of god yes i will sing the goodness of God. Father, we close this morning recognizing your faithfulness, proclaiming your faithfulness. Father, we ask that as you bring to us your mercies that are new every morning, and as you remind us of your steadfast love each and every day, that we would be a people that default towards gratitude, default towards great thankfulness for your love for us, your faithfulness to us, and your redemption of us. May we never glory in what we have achieved for ourselves, but always glory in what you have given to us and what and the victory you have won on our behalf. So, Father, may this people be a people united by Jesus united by the good news of what Jesus has accomplished for us. And Father, when the world around is tossed to and fro by everything, every new ideology, every new concept that comes in, may we guard the good deposit of the message of salvation that has been entrusted to us, the message of the resurrection of Christ Jesus our Lord. And may that be the message 
that binds us together. And may the Holy Spirit be present with us in all times so that we can live in full assurance of what we have received. Father, we give you the glory for this morning and for the life eternal that we have received. Send us out now with your presence and your calling into the mission field of our lives to go and make disciples for your kingdom and your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now remain standing and receive the blessing from the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.